0: This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Spencer McLean who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show.
1: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide
0: to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 508 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And so I want to give a special thank you to M. King, who just gave the book its first review on Amazon.com. The review says, I'm a huge fan of Mr. Kirtley's Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. I've bought fiction, nonfiction, movies, and TV series after learning about them on his show. I was excited to learn about this collection of his short fiction. I thought if it had the intelligence and dry wit he displays on the show, it would be worth it. I was unprepared for how terrific this book is. Mr. Curtley is an excellent writer. His writing has clarity, precision, and humor. He applies this stylistic writing to some terrific science fiction and fantasy ideas. The result is my favorite collection of short fiction in many years. This book is so good it leaves me feeling that I'd be willing to deal with the loss of Geek's Guide if we could have more stories of this quality. So big thanks again to M. King for that great review. And today on the show we'll be speaking with Maureen McHugh. She's the author of four novels, including China Mountain Zhang, which was nominated for the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award, and won the James Tiptree Jr. Award. She's also worked on alternate reality games for Halo 2, The Watchmen, and Nine Inch Nails. And we'll be speaking with her today about her short story collections After the Apocalypse and Mothers and Other Monsters, both of which were published by Small Beer Press. And now here's our interview with Maureen McHugh. Alright, so we're here with Maureen McHugh. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so how did you first get started publishing fiction? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I started publishing
1: back in the dark ages when you had to traditionally publish to start, which in my case, I think was a really good thing. I started writing early, wrote a really bad novel while I was in college, got an MA from New York University when the MFA program was still in MA program. And I wrote really, 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 really perfectly rule-bound prose about really boring stories. So I kept failing to publish. I submitted. um, I had a little system for submission. And then I had a breakthrough where I realized that I should make it a really interesting story instead Mm -hmm. of just doing whatever the characters wanted and submitted a story to Isaac Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine, and Gardner Dooswell bought it. That's my first publication. Actually, technically, no. I did sell a story under pseudonym to Twilight Zone Magazine first.
0: I was going to say, yeah. On, on Wikipedia, it says your first published story was published under a male pseudonym in Twilight Zone. So, what's kind of what's the story with that?
1: Um, I really th- was afraid that you know women didn't get published. I didn't see as many women, and women tended to write fantasy, or at least get published in fantasy. And um, I wrote a story, and Tappan King, the editor at the time, bought it for Twilight Zone First, which was a series they ran of first times an author was published. They were a really interesting magazine they published classic fantasy and science fiction stories, often with twist endings. But they also, for example, did reprints of South American and Central American magic realism. So, you never knew what you were going to read in the magazine. And I submitted the story, and then I moved to China, as one does. Hmm. And I realized I had this male pseudonym. And Tappan, who had actually met me, because he lived across the street from me, told me, you know, get a fake beard and pose with a camel next to the Great Wall. Well, you can't really get a fake beard in China. A lot of Chinese men have difficulty growing a beard. So I scooted my hair way back and as far as I could and put my hat on so it looked like I was hiding a receding hairline and had a picture taken. And nobody ever seemed to notice that I was actually not identifying as male. And I think I kind of look like the kind of guy who gets stuffed into lockers a lot in high school
0: and so but so then, after that, you just started publishing under your own under your yes. own
1: yes the The story was very different than what I usually wrote, and I thought that mattered. Uh just for new writers out there, it doesn't matter. It's still you, and I don't really recommend a pseudonym most of the time.
0: Uh and so when when you said you were writing all these really boring stories like were you were they, were they boring fantasy and science fiction stories, or were they boring literary stories, and then you decided you wanted to write more fantasy and science <laughs>
1: everything fiction? everything boring literary, boring science fiction, boring fantasy I could bore you in almost <laughs> any genre you could think of uh. yeah so but the first i I stopped writing science fiction when I was in grad school because we weren't supposed to. And then I started writing science fiction again because I started a writer's group. And one of the guys in the writer's group gave me Neuromancer to read, which I hadn't read. And I liked it. And I thought, people are doing interesting stuff in this space. I don't care if I'm not supposed to do This is what I do. So I started writing fantasy and science fiction again, mostly science fiction.
0: And so then you it looks like you were publishing short stories for about four years. And then your first novel comes out, China Mountain Zhang. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I actually sold China Mountain Jung in a, a couple of years before it came out, but it started out as a paperback and then the publisher made it into their first hard one of their early hardcover releases. And so it took a little longer than in production, but yeah. And the first story I published as Maureen McHugh as MF McHugh was actually a chapter from China Mountain.
0: I mean, because I, you know, I I haven't read uh, China Mountain Zhang, but I, um, you know, I know it's on the SF Masterworks list, and I, I've been trying to read as many of those as I can. So that's that's pretty. You really seems like you really hit it out of the park on your very first. Uh, if that was, you know, just around the time you started publishing.
1: I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that part of it is set in China, and I had actually lived in China. I, I think that was just dumb luck. Uh, I
0: was accidentally ahead of a curve. How did you? what, what made you go to China?
1: I was living in New York and I was teaching um, remedial writing and reading a lot at the university level and it was hard and I was young. And so I did what you might call a geographic cure. I decided, oh, I know I'll start my life over in a really new place. Somebody came into the university, talked about teaching in China And I submitted a resume the next week and a year later I went.
0: And so you had never thought about living in China prior to that?
1: I'd always wanted to live abroad. I had this obsession with uh, the lost generation in Paris. And what I really wanted to do was move to France. Unfortunately, moving to France is really expensive and it's (laughs) hard to get a job there if you're an American with a degree in writing. Uh, The it wasn't too long before the EU was established, and so the Brits had a, a leg up because at that point they were still part of it. And so then I could at least go to China, which turned out well for me. I spent a year there.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And then, so then it looks like you published uh, four novels in total, like um, mm-hmm. between 92 and 2001.
1: hmm Four novels. I've got a fifth one circulating right now, and I'm halfway through a sixth.
0: Oh, that's cool. So, is there anything you can say about the, the fifth novel?
1: The fifth novel is really an odd novel. It's not in any genre. It's sort of uh, – I've lived in L.A. for a long time, and I've done bottom-feeding work in Hollywood. And uh, so, to do the Hollywood thing, it's Wolf Hall meets Game of Thrones with lot less sex. <laughs> so, it – it's very historically researched. I won't go so far as to say it's historically accurate because I'm not a historian. It's got strange magic in it. And I did a lot of stylistic things that I thought were really interesting, but I'm not sure it's as fun for the reader. So I don't know that anybody's ever going to end up reading it. It's called Hinge.
0: But you have it. It's on submission at different publishing yeah. houses. Yeah. Or-
1: yeah. And the feedback we're getting most often is, I don't know what to do with this. So, <laughs> so I just well, started always, another There's one. always
0: no, novel number six, I guess, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And I'm halfway through that one. And that one is a romp involving AI. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. yeah. Is, is
0: it like uh, near future or space opera? or?
1: Yeah, it's like 50 years in the future. So like, there's a uh, there was a, a research base on on the moon, think McMurdo Station in the Antarctic, you know, scientists all living in dorms, underground and all that sort of thing. And then somebody got the bright idea, hey, Las Vegas is in a place with no water because nobody cares. So why don't we put casinos on the moon? So the city on the moon, which is called Mauro after the crater, is half place where people do fun research about interesting things like How You Treat Bone Diseases in Low Gravity, and Half is a place where you can go and gamble for extraordinary amounts of money. And my main character has to find somebody who has been kidnapped by a billionaire.
0: Yeah, that sounds really cool. So uh, when do you uh, expect to be finished with that?
1: I, I made the unfortunate decision to move back to Austin. We're moving in two weeks. So right now I'm up to my eyebrows in boxes, but I would love to have a draft finished by, by September or October.
0: No, that's really cool. Yeah, and actually I, I live in Austin. So uh I was gonna curious to ask you about that.
1: Ah. We um, live in the north west Austin. We've had a house there for fifteen years, but I spent ten of it here in LA.
0: Uh, yeah, actually, you know, we, we moved out here, my girlfriend's getting an MFA in creative writing at Texas State. So Oh
1: nice. Yeah, yeah I'd love to teach there.
0: Yeah, no, she lo- she loves it there. So uh, she's hoping to stay and teach uh, after. You know, she's she's just wrapping up her degree now. So she's hoping to stay and teach if she can.
1: It's a great writing town, weirdly enough. Everybody knows it for music, but uh, I mean Bruce Sterling used to live there. There's a huge or not huge, but there's a small but highly active little writing community that I just adore in Austin.
0: Well, cuz I I noticed in, you know, I I I told you I read your two short story collections, so it's um mm-hmm. Uh, Mothers and other monsters, and it's after the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in the acknowledgments for After the Apocalypse. You say to the group in Austin, and you mentioned some writers. Yeah. So yeah, so you, should you say more about like what is your has your what has been your experience as a writer in Austin?
1: Well, uh, I I will say that my husband and I had been there for only a couple of days when we went for breakfast at a little place downtown by accident. We just picked it at random. And my husband, Bob, who has never met him said, is that Howard Waldrop? Oh, wow! (laughs) because Howard is a very distinctive person, even if you've only seen his pictures and a bunch of these, of Bradley Denton, Warren Spector, Caroline Spector. I don't know if Sven was there. We're all sitting around eating breakfast. And so I went over and said hello to uh, Howard. And then they immediately said, Oh, you're here. Well, now you're part of the family, basically, and so there's my husband is part of Brad Denton's band, bland lemon Denton and the Lemonades. Um, <laughs> we we just get together, very they're doing a, a Saturday morning Zoom breakfast, and it's just it just it's just been a delightful place to live. Except in August, when it's
0: 105. I've I've noticed that. Yeah, it's funny yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> um. It's funny, you know, I was a big fan growing up of the Ultima uh, role-playing games. You know, oh, yeah. So I, I interviewed Warren Spector about that a couple of years ago. So that was that was a lot of fun.
1: The silly thing is I now, of course, teach narrative game design. I didn't know who Warren Spector was when I finally somebody said something. And I thought, why do they keep talking about him as a game god? <laughs> and then I found out, oh, my gosh, I am sitting next to a legend. He's a really smart, really fun guy.
0: It's a good thing that your husband recognized Howard Waltrip. Uh,
1: so it you changed. Sort of wonder
0: what would have happened if he, you know, what if he hadn't. The, the it br- it that changed time
1: my on. life. I have to admit. Yeah, yeah.
0: So when you say uh, you've done bottom, like, what is bottom feeding work in Hollywood? What does that uh, mean?
1: I worked on something called content marketing, and we re- we made alternate reality games, and these are. Experiences, we would take a story and we would basically shatter it across the web. So you would join and you could sign up and you would get emails from one of the characters every week. And sometimes your phone would ring and you would find websites. And we, I started working not on the first one. The first one was, is called, nicknamed Ilo, um, The Beast. And it was for Steven Spielberg's movie AI. I started working on the second one, which was called I Love Bees and was an ARG for the launch of Halo 2. So despite the fact that I have never played Halo, I know an enormous amount about things, about things like warthogs and the backstory of the Master Chief. Um, and so we created a story of the world of Earth. That ended with uh, the the claxons going. That the bad guys had come to try to destroy Earth, and then of course the Master Chief in the game saves them. And it was my first experience of interactive storytelling, which is a very complicated thing. And it was tremendously fun. And in fact, I just wrapped up working for someone on a project that's very similar.
0: I mean I'm not that familiar with these alternate alternative reality games. I sort of they, they seem sort of like a scavenger hunt kind of thing to me is that
1: There's often a scavenger there's often a scavenger hunt part of them, yeah. Uh the story is usually pretty complicated. It's got multiple characters and the problem is for a lot of people who get interested in them uh, at the moment to use a, a a narrative design term they're gated by puzzles meaning you finish finding everything you're going to find, and then there's a puzzle. And solving that takes you to the next thing that you find. Well, I hate puzzles. I don't even like crossword puzzles very much. Mm -hmm. But I liked the storytelling. I liked the idea that the story would call you on the phone. And it's an interesting medium. It's got a pretty steep entry curve, but it's also – Intra- incredibly immersive in a way that a movie or a book can never be because the people in the game actually affect the direction of the story and they can feel that
0: that's and you said what's the one you're working on now that you're doing some sort of colonizing mars thing.
1: i'm working on an nft game just wrapped up called colonize mars nft um i'd rather not discuss nfts in public I have opinions, but I really like the guy who runs Colonize Mars. So we will gloss over my opinions on NFTs, but he's very excited about both Mars. He's very serious about this being something, the way star Trek created an entire generation that was more interested in STEM along, of course, with funding from the national science foundation and the government because of the fears of the Russians. Um, he wants to inspire people to think about colonizing Mars in a very serious way. But he also wants to entertain them. And it's very hard. NFT games are weird because when you start messing with an NFT game, you run the risk of affecting people's actual money earnings. It's like making a game in the stock market. So we were making an experience that would immerse them even more in the colonized Mars experience. And, um, it uses a lot of the same techniques that we did in those old ARGs.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds really cool. And yeah, definitely uh, that's a world I'm sort of, I'm not that familiar with this. I said, so I need to start looking into it more because yeah, it, it does sound really interesting.
1: Well, sort of like- I will, I will tell you, I knew nothing except the most superficial things about cryptocurrency and nfts before i started this and part of the reason i did it is i thought i want to see what's here so it was a very interesting way to kind of get paid to learn
0: yeah no, that's great but so yeah so i, I do want to ask you about your short story collections which i read so um so the earliest one is called as i said it's called mothers and other monsters and it's stories that were published between 1992 and 2005 yes so could you say like kind of how did that book come about
1: yeah uh you can blame Karen Joy Fowler. Hmm. We were in a workshop called Sycamore Hill, and Bruce Sterling had written a story called Bicycle Repairman. And in that story, the protagonist, who is a 20-something bicycle repairman in a cyberpunk world, talks to his mother on the phone. And Karen said offhandedly, I always like to see mothers in stories. And I started thinking about that a lot. I was a new stepmother. And that was a very awkward role. I think stepmothering is almost always an awkward role, and i uh, I love my kid beyond words. uh we are incredibly close, but it certainly wasn't easy. So I was thinking I didn't know what the difference between being a stepmother and a mother was, and I had a very close relationship with my own mother, and yet every woman I knew when you said something about you know moms, they would roll their eyes a little and'd say, "Oh, my mom, sometimes fondly, sometimes not." So I started writing stories in which, among other things, there were mothers and children. And I learned a lot. I also made all of my mothers for a long time beleaguered and nice, and it took me a long time to start seeing mothers as anything other than beleaguered and nice.
0: Hmm. Do, you, do, you, do you remember where that, that title, Mothers and Other Monsters, do you remember how that came to you? Or, or
1: No, I have no idea. It's the best title I've ever come up with, and I have hmm. no idea. Um, eventually, Kelly Link said to me, "Why don't you write a story about a bad mother?" And that story actually appears as the final story in After the Apocalypse. So,
0: so, 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 this is after you had published Mothers and Other Monsters. Kelly Link said this, or like, th- did you?
1: I think she said it while I was still writing stories for Mothers and Other Monsters, but it took okay. me a long time to wrap my head around it and be able to write it.
0: I love that story, by the way. I mean, that's the title. It's called "After the Apocalypse." That story. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was a fantastic story.
1: Thank you so much. It was the. It is a story that took me ten years to be able to write. So I was I was so worried that I was a bad mother. I think I couldn't face it, so I had to confront that and deal with it, and learned an awful lot of my particular stepmother issues were actually just motherhood issues. And people don't talk about mothers. There's only, if you go through most literature and film, mothers tend to come in two flavors. They're either saints or they are crazy and beating you with wire hangers. And it there are people who have bucked this trend. Lois McMaster Bujold has written actual mothers who have actions, but Mothers usually live in support of other characters. And yet it's probably the most essential relationship in most people's lives. It's the first major relationship. It's a relationship I think we can never actually look at because it's almost too close to us. And I'm still very curious. I'd love to see stories in which mothers were where motherhood was seen as not something that you either succeed or fail at, but something that actually we use the way we use romantic relationships or um, buddy movies or something. Why don't we look at that relationship as part of what generates story? And part of the reason is because, you know, what do you do with the kids? That's why in children's books, they always ditch the parents right hmm. away so the kids have autonomy.
0: Well, because I was going to say that, yeah, so so there's the other uh, collection, is called After the Apocalypse. And if you take the two books together, I mean, almost every story is told from the point of view of a female character. Um, and it but, sounds like you did that very deliberately. Or-
1: I realized I was writing early. I realized I was – China Mountain, most of the protagonists, most of the chapters are written from a male point of view, not all of them. But I realized that I had read – I have an undergraduate degree in English literature – and an MA in English literature with a concentration in writing. And most of the stuff I read was either written by men about men or written by men about women with the occasional book or class in which we actually, you know, looked at women's literature. This despite the fact that women write more than 50% of books and have for most of the history of the novel. And I thought, you know, I'm not a guy. So maybe I should write some books about women. So yeah, it was a really conscious decision to to not try to write in a tradition, in a voice that wasn't mine, and to write more in a voice that came from my own experience.
0: I mean, you mentioned Kelly Link in there. Um, I thought it was interesting in, in the acknowledgements, you say, to Gavin J. Grant and Kelly Link for being so enthusiastic about, of all things, another collection of short stories. Could you yes. say why do you say of all things uh, uh, the collection of short stories?
1: So, uh, an awful lot of the times in traditional publishing, uh, a collection of short stories is a gift the publisher gives the writer because they don't make any money, and so the you know you'll sell two novels and a collection of short stories, and then the two novels pay enough that the collection of short stories, the loss on the collection of short stories is is not drastic i'm really lucky gavin and kelly are geniuses at getting people to look at at the work that they've they're putting out that they think is interesting and they're they went to the aba one year in the american book association the big conference and they were promoting a book by a guy named pen ben Parzibach called couch which is a delightful little book so in front of their booth they had a translucent blow-up couch that you could carry around. People carried it all around the ABA. Um, they got people to pay attention to both Mothers and Other Monsters. Um, I was in New York for the Story Awards, and a bookseller in New York at a bookstore said, I've sold that to every book group in the village. So I was, you know, excited to death. And then uh, after the apocalypse, they also so they actually did not lose too much money, if any, on my collections. But that's not the norm, I have to say.
0: Yeah, it, it, it frustrates me so much because I love, like single author short story collections are my favorite thing to read. And so I interview people about them all the time on this podcast. And uh, it's so interesting to me that, you know, you, you get um, sort of a, a sense of what someone's interests, you know, multifarious interests are and what the sweep of their career has been and, and so on. And yeah, it's always just sort of uh, baffling to me that... That more people don't read them?
1: I don't know why, but uh, people say, well, I love short stories. And if you say to them, do you own any collections or anthologies? And they say, no. And you say, when did you last read a short story? They don't know. So, yeah, I love short stories. I understand a novel takes you all the way through, and every time you finish a short story, there's that – little energy investment to get into the next short story. But I just love the form so much.
0: I mean it looks like after the apocalypse did really well. I mean, just looking on Goodreads, I mean there's thousands of customer ratings and stuff. I mean, it looks like, you know, for a short story collection that it made quite a splash.
1: It did. It really did. Uh it was one of Publisher's weekly's ten best books of the year that year, which helped. But also, I think short story readers like you are people who are Know that they're fighting an uphill battle, so you guys get all passionate and you go hmm. out there and you review and you create podcasts.
0: So, what you said, it was Publishers Weekly's one of their top ten books of the year, like of all books, or yeah,
1: yeah, like um ha-
0: counting like cookbooks and just anything, or like,
1: um, well, I know there was nonfiction on there because, um, um there were a couple of, I think Tina Fey had her. Memoir out that year. uh, After the apocalypse, didn't sell near as much as (laughs) Perk did. Uh, So yeah, yeah. Now they do a category. Uh, My understanding is that the departments all get to recommend, and uh, that after the apocalypse got recommended, pushed up. But then yeah, Yeah, it was really great.
0: That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I I, would you. i tell you i have been incredibly lucky i mean i think after the apocalypse is brilliant but you know, there are a lot a lot of brilliant collections out there and most people don't get the breaks that i have gotten
0: did you you said that there are other podcasts that have um, that are really enthusiastic about short short story collections
1: I don't know. Um, I just meant that people who are interested in short story collections are more likely to be proactive because they, their enthusiasm, they know that they're fighting against a world that isn't paying any attention to them. So you're doing the podcast. I have been interviewed for writers podcasts. But I you're the first person who's ever interviewed me for a, sh- a short story collection podcast
0: yeah i was gonna say i wish i don't i don't really know of other people who do particularly um focus on short story collections so i'd I'd like to meet more you know not be so not be so lonely
1: (laughs) podcasting's a lonely world anyway you're sitting in your closet with your mic
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so so what is because you uh you actually started your own podcast recently right
1: right uh we did our our first season it's called story kitchen let me do it with uh, a writer and game designer, uh, Jane Pinkard. And I've taught a lot of writing courses in my life, a ton, actually. 30 years of writing courses, probably. Starting from everything from, you know, freshman composition to, I've taught a lot of MFA work. But I've taught a lot of courses for non-majors, or I, like I taught narrative design for um, video games. And like, I'd have a person in my class who has a uh, BFA in writing and sitting next to them is a person who has a uh, Bachelor of Science in computer programming. And I had to figure out how to teach so that both of those people got something out of it. And so I thought a lot about ways to talk about writing. And Jane is really smart and articulate and has got an awful lot of um, understanding of, I'm I'm 63, uh, so I'm out of step sometimes. And she's much more aware of a lot of what's going on right now, changes in the way we look at writing and changes in the way that we do things. And so the two of us did this podcast in which we would just talk about writing things.
0: And so, sort so what, of, what was? Did you get feedback, or kind of what was your experience? Like, did you like podcasting? Like, what? Was I loved podcasting.
1: It? I hate editing, but I love you know doing <laughs> post. Um, yeah, yeah. I have no background, and I use a, uh, a an off the shelf thing called Audacity, and I sit and I just try to take out as many of the ums and the uhs and. Uh, I trained myself not to say, um, so much, but it just means I have these long pauses instead, which are just as disconcerting. Hmm. So, but I, you don't get a ton of feedback. Just like when you write a book or a short story, you don't get a ton of feedback, but we did get more and more. We were, we're building an audience slowly and steadily. And we also teach classes on the side. So sometimes you can take a class from one or both of us on zoom.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've done 500 episodes and I still use Audacity for the editing. So, I yeah, know but you're it well.
1: you're probably better at mixing than I am. I just use it, my podcasts sound better than if they were recorded in a garage with no mix, but they don't sound as good as This American Life. How's that?
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, neither does not, neither does this. Uh, <laughs> as everyone listening, <laughs> well, as will be apparent to everyone listening. Um, but so then you said, like, what is it like been uh, being interviewed on other people's podcasts as an author? Like what kind of questions do you get asked?
1: Well, there was like a, I did a, a podcast where they talked about point of view and I'm obsessed with point of view. And I wrote a story quite consciously in second person just to see if I could do it. So I just talked about, to use a video game term, the affordances of second person, what it does do, what it doesn't do. I could just talk about that until people's eyes glaze over, which I can tell you is about a minute and a half. <laughs> so I often get, not often, a couple of times I've been asked to talk on podcasts, and I would like to talk about the nuts and bolts of the technique of prose, which is what I really wanted out of my MFA. And I got a lot of good out of my MFA, but only a couple of times did people talk about technique. And I believe that technique is like, the Technique of carpentry or cooking, you can learn stuff that will really, really help you as a writer. And I was saying that technique will get you through times of no inspiration a hell of a lot better than inspiration gets you through times of no technique. But on the other hand, I can also tell you, I was talking to Charlie Finley, who was the editor recently stepped down of um, FNSF FNSF fantasy and science fiction. And he said that it used to be when you were going through the slush pile, the stuff that people had submitted to the magazine, a lot of it was just not really good enough. But with self-publishing and online stuff and fan fiction, he said, now more and more, it's no longer, can I get enough good stories to fill a magazine? It He started having to decide what sounds like FNSF versus sounding like something else. So despite my insistence that people need to talk more about technique, it turns out people are writing better and better even without that.
0: I was just somebody just I saw this on Twitter. I don't remember who, who but they said, you know, in their MFA program or whatever in college, the professor once said, don't ever start a story with dialogue. And this author said that was just, you know, he was wrong about everything. And that was one of the things <laughs> I, I had to unlearn. But I kind of like, I mean, it, I, I like it when someone has something like specific like that, where they have a really strong feeling about it. And and then I can decide, then it makes you think, like, do I agree with that? Or do I disagree with that? Whereas so much um, writing advice is just so kind of airy and abstract that it's hard to kind of sink your teeth into. So I, I kind of like it when people have really strong opinions, even if they're even if they're completely wrong.
1: And I will say... China Mountain Zhang, as I remember correctly, starts with dialogue. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I can see a very good reason to say to students, don't ever start with dialogue. Don't ever start with somebody waking up in the morning. Don't ever. And yet I can also turn around and give you lots of examples. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy starts with Arthur Dent working, waking up in the morning. Of course, it instantly goes to there's a bulldozer right outside his front <laughs> <Yeah, time>. door. <yeah. laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, what I like to talk about is the why of technique. Um, Vladimir Bukov had a rule that you should only use about two colors in a paragraph of description. And since then, there's been um, research in psychology unrelated to Bukov. He didn't know about it. They didn't know about him. It said that's about how much we carry in our memory. And what happens is the more colors you put in that description of your sunset or your room or whatever, the muddier it becomes in people's heads And the less visual it is for them, and they tend to remember the first color in the sequence and the last color in in the sequence, which is apparently called primacy and recency. I sometimes use three colors in a description. It's not a hard and fast rule. But what it reminds me of all the time is when I'm describing, my job is not to make the reader see exactly what's in my head. My job is to evoke a very strong image in the reader's head, and I can do that better with a little less than a little more.
0: You know, uh Roger Zelazny said something very similar about describing characters where he said he tried to limit it to three details. So he would say, you know, he was a skinny kid with straw mm-hmm. hair or something. And and if you win if you gave any more than that, uh people would just kind of it would just become sort of a muddle. And um when I taught writing, I used to make this point. There was a passage from Bram Stoker's Dracula describing a character, and I would read it and you know and it, it, it it's like the his nostrils were wide <laughs> you know, well formed and like the all this 19th stuff.
1: century and 18th century tendency to start at the top of the head and go all the way down to their shoes
0: yeah and and like you know, i i would read this paragraph and then i would say okay so what you know what what color is this character's hair and nobody would know you know they had just been so overwhelmed with tr- you know sort of insignificant or uh you know unimportant details that uh That they had no, really no, even the most basic stuff was was completely lost on them.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that was because, of course, those, uh, and the novel was pretty new at that point, unless you were Japanese or maybe Chinese. But in the West, the novel was pretty new because we got, we were late on figuring out how to print things. Paper was the big issue. And... Uh, But the people were still figuring it out. And so they were doing that. They were describing everything because they thought that was the best way to do it. And it took a long time for us to figure out that, no, describing everything is not good technique. And so I just wish people would teach that. But on the other hand, you know, we tend to codify things. Like I don't think point of view is nearly as important as writing teachers, myself included, think it is. We're so against head hopping, for example, changing point of view. But, you know, it's hard to do, but there's no reason not to do it if you can make sure that the reader always knows exactly what's going on. It's just harder to have the reader always know what's going on if you shift point of view too much.
0: Yeah, well, we we uh, reviewed uh, Frank Herbert's Dune Um in the last year or two, and there's this 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 uh amazing dinner scene where there 's all this intrigue going on and it and it 's hopping from character 's head to character 's head and in general you know yeah i i don't like head hopping, but i I was forced to concede in that scene there's there 's no way to write this scene without all the head hopping because it 's just so complicated what 's going on with all the characters
1: right right I, I think the biggest problem with head hopping for most people is um you either have to make sure that when you head hop, you instantly anchor the reader in whatever perspective they're in so they know what's going on, or you need a controlling narrative voice like the 18th century novels used to do where the narrator would tell you all of these things and have this sort of rollicking Tom Jones style. And, uh, or you can be like the female man, um, Joanna Russ's book, which shifts points of view sometimes two or three times in a paragraph. And you spend a lot of time playing catch-up, but that's part of the pleasure of that novel.
0: Yeah. You mentioned uh, This American Life, and I did want to ask you about you – one of my favorite stories from these books is called Interview on Any Given Day. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if that was uh,
1: – It's a direct rip-off. By, yeah. It's direct rip-off. <laughs> it's if I could do This American Life, and I had a story to tell. Yes. Yes. So influenced.
0: Could you just say sort of how that story came about, or do you remember what the initial – inspiration was or anything
1: okay i'll be absolutely honest the initial inspiration was that i had to have a short story for my writers group <laughs> so then i was casting around for ideas and i used to listen to this american life all the time in the car probably cuz it was on when i was coming home from work and i thought it would be fun to try that um it it's really interesting when I, when smobber press did Mothers and other monsters. I found out Gavin was worried that the stories would all sound too much alike. And I was worried that the stories would all sound too much alike. Female protagonists, uh, sort of modern day, mostly five minutes into the future kind of story about angst. And it turns out that they don't sound all that much alike because. This one looks like a episode of This American Life, and that one is about based on the structure of a of a Chinese essay. It's called the Eight Legged Story, and the they thank goodness. I'm glad to say that somehow trying to figure out new ways to tell stories seems to be something that I really enjoy, and it at least makes me keeps me from sounding the same all the time.
0: I'll just explain this. So the premise of the story is it's it's told mostly from the point of view of a teenage girl, and it's in this future in which there's rejuvenation treatments, so so baby boomers can go in and and basically come out looking like teenagers, uh-huh. and then and so this this sort of high school girl has has been dating this um sort of rejuvenated baby boomer, uh-huh. and and it sort of talks about that. And I think one of the you know advice uh, pieces of advice you get a lot. At writing workshops, as they say, to write an ending, which is surprising yet inevitable. Mm -hmm. And some of these, you know, a a bunch of these stories I thought did this, uh, do that really well, including this one where, you know, what what happens at the end, and I won't uh, spoil it, but what happens at the end completely surprised me, but in retrospect seems completely uh, inevitable. So,
1: Uh, you know, my students can now chant back to me, surprising, but inevitable, (laughs) because I say that so often. And the only story I'm really conscious of having, I think, pulled it off is the, the title story of After the Apocalypse.
0: That was, that was the other, you know, definite, definite example that comes to mind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I really do feel like, and I didn't know what the ending exactly was when I started the story, but I wasn't at all surprised by the ending. And I will say that's a bad mother story, but I, quite sympathize with the the mother in after the apocalypse although i do not condone her actions
0: yeah and and again just to explain so it's so it's yeah it's after an apocalypse and there's a mother and her daughter trying to survive and it's sort of about what what choices they make
1: yes yes and the mother's a pretty ambivalent mother she's not really comfortable with motherhood which so, I think so, is something that mothers are never allowed to talk about, by the way.
0: hmm So, I mean, did you, so in general, do you know the endings of the stories, or do you figure them out as you're going?
1: I'm not a an outliner. I'm pretty much a person who finds the story as I write it. This sometimes means lots of revisions, I will confess. But I also started writing back when we had typewriters so if you changed a line on a typewriter, it often meant that you added or subtracted a line from the manuscript. And if you added a line into the manuscript, that means you had to retype everything on the subsequent pages. So I do a lot of work in my head, I'm kind of like a watercolor artist, I guess.
0: I mean, um, what's the other? The, the Naturalist is another story that mm-hmm. the ending really, mm-hmm. really hit me, you know. Um, and actually, it was interesting you say um, – to a- This is in the acknowledgements to Adam, who asked me to write The Naturalist based on a dream he had?
1: Yes. Yes. Adam's my kid. I say my kid. He's 37. He keeps <laughs> saying to me, I'm middle-aged. But <laughs> uh, uh, he's, um, he came to me one time and said, I, I had this dream and you have to write about it. They had completely walled off downtown Cleveland. And... The only people in there were criminals. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that that was the plot from Escape from New York. (laughs) And there was something, I think, in his dream about zombies. So I started thinking about, well, how could I write this? Because I was just so grateful that he came and asked me. Uh, I was tickled to death. So The Naturalist, which is a story about a future in which a highly conservative government has done something totally insane after in the wake of a zombie apocalypse, which is there are certain parts of the country where they have just walled off an area full of zombies. And they, it's kind of like, we'll get to it when we get to it. But most of the com- country is sort of coming back to normal. And what they do now is if they, there are a certain class of prisoners that they just dump them in the zombie zones and let them fend for themselves. And... There's a tradition in these, in Escape from New York is a classic version of it, of the anti-hero with his own moral code. And I wanted to kind of riff on that tradition. So oh. Cahill, I guess you could say Cahill has his own moral code. He's the main character of the, the naturalist. I just don't think it's the one you'd expect. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was a terrific story, and it's it's dark. I mean, a lot of these stories are really dark in these two collections.
1: I am very angsty. (laughs) I write about all the things I'm afraid of.
0: Did did you set out to write a bunch of uh, like was that a conscious decision to write a group of apocalyptic stories, or did that just kind of is that just how they all came out for the after the apocalypse um, collection?
1: I think after I'd written four or five stories that had apocalyptic themes. I realized that I was interested in that. And that gave me something to kind of think about when I wrote stories. So yes, I kind of stumbled on it. But seriously, underlying all of those stories are sort of cliche, middle-aged anxieties. Um, what happens if things fall apart? Will I be all right? What does it mean to be a good or bad person? Um, I just wrote about all the things you wake up at three in the morning fretting about. But I hid them as best I could in science fictional themes.
0: Yeah, well, well, because so many of these stories, you know, there's, um, you know, uh, avian flu pandemic or dirty bombs and stuff like that. But then you focus on characters who were. Just sort of mm-hmm. trying to go, you know, it's not like the CDC or like the military or something. It's you're you're focusing on these ordinary people just trying to get through the day.
1: Mm-hmm. Because I've never worked for the CDC. I've been an ordinary person much of my life. <laughs> I expect to continue being an ordinary person much of my life. And they really are intensely personal to me. I'm trying to figure out what's the bad thing to do. What's the good thing to do? How figure out is a weird word. I say that as, in a writerly sense. I don't think I've ever written a story that told me what I would do in real life. Uh, I will say that writing After the Apocalypse meant that right now I'm living in Los Angeles and I didn't have an earthquake kit. And I thought it's going to be really ironic if you wrote a book called After the Apocalypse and you there was a giant San Andreas Fault event and you didn't have an earthquake kit. So now I have a really extensive earthquake kit. So if there's an earthquake in the next two weeks before I move to Austin, you should come to my house because I've got lots of stuff.
0: <laughs> well, one thing that really struck me is, you know, all the people, all the different characters in these in these different stories have all these different jobs. And you write about all these jobs with so much authority that I was like, have you done all these jobs? Or you must have either had all these jobs or done a lot of research <laughs> on all these
1: jobs. <laughs> um, I do tend to try to give my characters jobs at which either – I've had them or somebody I know has had them. I'm the first thing that it, it amazes me how often in a, in a, in fiction people lose or quit their job and it's not even a big deal because in my life, if I lose or quit my job, it's a huge deal. I, I don't know about getting another job. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, It's just hard. And there's another writer, a guy named Nathan Ballinroot, who I really recommend. Um, North American Lake Monsters is his collection of short stories. And he and I have bonded over the fact that we write about jobs and we often write about blue collar jobs. And I don't, I can't tell you where that comes from. Um, just that I didn't see it very often, I guess. And it made such a huge part of my own life. But now I've discovered that if you really want to know what a profession is like, you just go on Reddit and you find a subreddit in which the people who do that job are bitching about it. And you can <laughs> learn so much. I have to write a nursing story now because I've been in our nursing long enough to know what it is that nurses complain about and what it is they like best.
0: Like this, I'm trying to remember which story it was. The, the one where the woman makes the dolls that she sells over the internet. There was just so much detail about how to how she manufactures those dolls is
1: My husband was working on 3D printers at the time he's an, he wasn't he's a retired engineer and so yeah I just said to Bob how would you do this and it all started as a joke because he his company made Stretch Armstrong the toy and the way you make Stretch Armstrong's skin is the same way you make a condom so we joked about dildos and 3d printers and manufacturing and that's how this weird story about this woman who makes oh and i saw a a television show about these incredibly realistic life-like looking dolls that people buy i mean there are stories of of policemen breaking windows of cars because they thought a child might suffocate in the back seat. And it was one of these dolls and they're expensive. And so I, I, I just thought, okay, let's, let's live on the edge of it and make these dolls and see if we can make a living. I didn't make them. I mean, that's the story is exploring that. And again, it's the world is falling apart and this person is trying to survive in the cracks.
0: Yeah, I I don't like those kinds of dolls. I would never be able to sleep just knowing there was a doll like that anywhere in my they, house.
1: They are cute but creepy.
0: I wanted to ask you about some of these um there's just these sort of speculative technologies in some of these stories and I was just curious if uh if any of these are on the horizon. So you have um the um the like bacterial computer um from uh uh which story is that uh it was in China. Oh, 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 yeah, so, oh, oh, um, oh, oh, no. yeah
1: no. um special, special economics. Special economics, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are actual bacterial computers. There's a real reason for having bacterial computers. Um, there's a, a computer problem called the salesman, traveling salesman, which yeah, is yeah. how hard it is to plot a the most efficient course in a multi-destination trip. It just isn't linear in a way that, computers handle really well. And the best computers to solve that in terms of fastest are organic computers that solve it by creating chains of molecules, and you pick the shortest one. The problem is, it's really hard to create an interface that can sort through all those molecules. So I was really thinking about ways that you could, you know, use organic materials and computers, but I would not take it as very serious speculation.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, in the story, they're they're making sort of batteries with like electric eel genes and stuff like that, or mm-hmm.
1: cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and like I said, that I don't know really. Uh, yeah, we can make a cluster of cells in a petri dish that will shock you, but I don't. I I don't do the math to figure out if this would be particularly efficient or not. So I'm thinking it's not on the horizon.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Um, and then in the story Presence, there's this Alzheimer's treatment where basically they, they somehow are able to fill in the holes in your between your neurons with a sort of stem cell, sort of generalized stem cell goo that kind of will transmit the signals but doesn't replace the memories that you've lost. Right. I was, I was just curious what, if, if that's on the horizon or anything like that at all.
1: No, no. Uh, at the time, they thought that amyloid plaques were the cause of Alzheimer's. And now there's more and more evidence that amyloid plaques are just a symptom. And even if you could remove them, all the course of the disease wouldn't particularly change. But my mother had dementia. So I was fascinated by the consequences of dementia, of watching a person who was someone you knew become someone you don't. And it occurred to me that if we could scrub all of the disease out of her brain, we couldn't put back all of the things that she no longer remembered and what would that mean would, what person would she be then and i i wrote a poem which i don't particularly recommend reading um but in it i talk about you know is she still the same person she is and and i came to the conclusion that even troy the city where no Stan. Stone stands on original stone is still a place that we recognize as Troy. You're still the person. You're just a very, very different than you used to be. And uh, what would be the effect of that on, on a relationship? What, what would be the effect of that on a marriage, even if you could cure it? I knew what the effect was when you couldn't, but what if you could? And so I wrote presence. But no, it takes... An actual science question, and it examines consequences, but the science in it is all hand waving:
0: All right, so this is probably going to be my final question, but I was just wondering if do you have any uh, particularly strong feelings about plaid because just uh reading all these stories, I just noticed that a lot of characters wear plaid, and it's <laughs> do often they really a, yeah, often a sign that the person is uh dangerous and or uh offbeat in some way. <laughs>
1: How interesting. That's really funny. The only association I really have with plaid is that I used to have to wear a uniform to go to school and I hated it. (laughs) So So I'm going to say that's why evil people wear plaid. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Thank you for that insight.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's just, you know, when you read 20 stories by somebody, it's kind of interesting what, this is one of the things, like I was saying, why I like reading short story collections is you just see these sort of, you know. Do you see, see stuff like that?
1: In the first part of my career, I found out I used white exactly the opposite of the way that most people do. White was the white color was of bad. white was the color of death and the color of sort of altering transformation. And I don't know about bad, but it wasn't it wasn't the way white is normally used. I'll say that. Uh huh. And I didn't know that. Somebody wrote a paper on it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's nice. So how so, so you are you sort of are able to follow people writing papers about your work?
1: Never. Uh once in a while somebody will call attention to one and then I'll see it. But no, I, I don't think there are very many papers written about my work.
0: Well, there should be more, because it's really good.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It was so fun that you've read them so closely. That makes me so happy. I can't begin to tell you.
0: You're oh. the perfect reader, David. Oh, oh thank you, thank you. Um, but yes, yeah, so we're, we're pretty much out of time. So uh, we should probably start wrapping this up. So, do you have any uh, any other final thoughts? Or I guess you mentioned already your upcoming books, but uh, other projects or blog posts or anything you want to point people to?
1: Not that I can think of offhand, uh, except that as I did. Um, mothers for a while, and then I did apocalypses for a while, and right now I'm doing a lot of AI stuff. So maybe the next book will be something about AI.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, because um, there's at least a one. Uh, there's the um, Kingdom of the Blind story in here, which I thought was a really good take on AI. So um, yeah, definitely curious to see what else. Uh, what well, else you you got working on?
1: I just found out that you know they've done some work like at Norlink about AIs, and they have discovered that. And if you're at all aware of the experiments they did where people who had uncontrollable seizures, they would cut the corpus callosum, the connection between their two brains, and people would notice no effects. But it turned out that they basically have two individuals living in their head, um, the left and right brain. Um, that when you, if you connect two brains together, you don't get me reading your thoughts and you reading my thoughts. You get a new I that is both of us. And I find that so fascinating. I've been trying to think of stories around that.
0: Yeah. So probably a, sh- a short story, you think, that would be?
1: At least a short story, maybe more.
0: Yep. All right. So everyone keep an eye out for that. The, yeah, that sounds re- – that's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, with all the um, – you know, I interviewed um, recently Gerald Gregory. He writes a lot of stories about neuro- uh, neuroscience. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just so much – such a rich uh, area for, for speculative fiction.
1: It is. It is. And not very explored yet.
0: Yeah. Um, All right. So why don't we uh, wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Maureen McHugh about her books After the Apocalypse and Mothers and Other Monsters. So Maureen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, David.
0: And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Maureen McHugh for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com.